Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Okay, a couple things. Number one, thanks to Bo and uh, the Schinnebargers last week. That was so good to listen to the to the recording on the website. If you haven't listened to it from last Sunday morning, you certainly should. It was excellent in all ways. Um, just a couple of things here. Uh, the last Sunday in this quarter is November the 25th. And uh, at least as of now, and I believe, I believe this is going to happen, uh, Byron... Brian Brian Brown, excuse me, Brian Brown is going to talk to us about the dangers of the digital age. Because whether you know it or not, he's connected with, he's, he is in the FBI and works with local police and they're into catching pornography, child pornography, and he has, he talks, he gives talks, lectures at different venues. And so I've asked him to come and speak here. It's the last Sunday morning, 9 o'clock in November, which is November the 25th. I don't know what he's going to call his talk. I just called it the dangers of the digital age. Um, we had a good time down in, in Florida, yeah. We were in Franklin, Franklin, Tennessee, and uh, that is quite a place to be. Uh, we were with the Lamars last weekend, had a wonderful time, uh, went to church with them, Michael Easley is their pastor. He was for about three years president of Moody Bible Institute, but he has some serious back issues. You can tell when he when he walks, he keeps his spine very straight, and so on. But anyway, they've started a church down there, Stone Bridge, I think it is, Bible Church, and so we were there. They've got a probably a group of maybe three, four hundred people meeting in one of Dave Ramsey's meeting places. Uh, it's right in the Dave Ramsey complex. Uh, so he's got a real nice, so for right now, at least temporarily, that's where they're meeting. But it was good to be with them and travel around, see that part of the country, Franklin, Tennessee. So uh, now we are studying this, this quarter, this book, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm not following it, and probably Bo didn't either, but I'm not following it, you know, paragraph by paragraph. I'm expanding on some things, not including other things. But anyway, so Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was one of our favorite people. And you may not be uh, as familiar with him or even know who he is. Who is this man, Martin Lloyd-Jones? He died in 1981. Uh, so uh, I came across in our library uh, this set of Logic on Fire. I forgot that we had this. And in this set, there's some DVDs. One of them is an hour and a half about Martin Lloyd-Jones and men that knew him speak into it. There's some footage there of Martin Lloyd-Jones. So... I'm going to be putting this back in the library if you'd be interested. But in there, there's a DVD that has um, extra. And there's a short little two-and-a-half-minute uh, DVD 
about Martin Lloyd-Jones. I thought, I want our people to know who this man is. See him. Put a face to the name. You will, you will see a lot of men here that you've either seen before or you'll recognize their names. So pay attention and you'll notice, you know, different ones uh, who will speak about Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's only two and a half minutes, so can we get that going up there? Maybe hit these lights, drop them down a little bit. See if we can get that. I believe that Lloyd-Jones was to 20th century Britain what Charles Spurgeon was to the 19th century. Some people have called Edwards the last Puritan. I refer to Martin Lloyd-Jones as maybe the last of the Puritans. Well, there was nothing flashy about him. He wasn't anything to look at. He had no gimmicks or tricks. He was a man trained to be a medical doctor who felt the call of the Lord to be a, a surgeon of souls. Truly when you met with him and talked with him, so often you left his presence feeling a greater hunger for God and to know Christ. And in the right sense of the word, he brought the gospel into the contemporary world in a very contemporary way. In the day when Lloyd-Jones pastored, British churches were experiencing a, a drought, the decline in numbers had begun. And in many ways, Lloyd-Jones faced then what we face today, and his choice radically different. His choice was to remove the things that people felt were essential to attract modern man, and instead to give them this timeless attraction of Christ. He was grave in the pulpit and urgent about the souls of people listening. And he did it with such passion and joy and clarity. As well as profound systematic theology, you can't read or hear a Lloyd-Jones sermon without realizing the interconnectedness of what he's doing. It was absolutely clear, it was absolutely logical, they could all understand it, but the fire was there. Light without heat never affects anybody, it's no use to anybody. Heat without light is no good. You must have light and heat. What is preaching? Logic on fire. He was simply seeking to be faithful to what he read in the scriptures, that the word of God must come with the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. And all of his love for the scripture, all the passion of his heart for the glory and honor and sovereignty of God just came roaring out of him. It was expository, discerning, diagnostic, uh, soul-stretching, mind-stretching, life-changing, preaching. That wasn't enough. That was just a little sip. So if you want to see more and hear more, um, about an hour and a half DVD of, of Life of Martin Lloyd-Jones in there. Did you see anybody you knew there? John who? Snyder? Yeah. Anybody else? Anybody's favorite? John MacArthur. John MacArthur. R.C. Sproul. You see Ian Murray? Ian Murray, he wrote the biography that we studied on Saturday mornings here, what, a couple years ago, I think it was? That we went through his nice biography. There's a two-volume set on Martin Lloyd-Jones, and they're both that about that thick. So very good, and it, you should read them. They're excellent. Uh, but Ian Murray, 
reduced it down to one volume. So has anyone read the Sermon on the Mount? Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. Anybody? Whoa, good. You need to read that. That's Sermon on the Mount. It's uh, probably in one volume. I think I have it in one volume. Read it many, many years ago. Um, I think John MacArthur preached the Beatitudes, and he relied much on Martin Lloyd-Jones' Sermon on the Mount sermons. And so I thought, well, if he's good enough for MacArthur, then he's certainly good enough for me. And I got it and preached through it myself. But very good. Also, uh, how many have read Spiritual Depression? A few more have read Spiritual Depression. That's Martin Lloyd-Jones probably at his most helpful practical. That's a great book. Mistitled. Spiritual depression sounds like you immediately think of clinical depression, darkness. It's not that at all. It's faith-building messages that Martin Lloyd-Jones brought. He got the whole outline. This is what every preacher looks forward to. He got the whole outline all of a sudden. He just got it. He quick wrote it down. He went and wrote down the outline of what these sermons were going to be. And there are about 14 sermons there in that uh, spiritual depression book, but they're just great about faith, and a lot of it's on trials. Some of it's kind of like what we're doing here. Excuse me, here this morning. So, uh, but anyway, here we go. Are we ready? Yes, we are. Uh, we are. If you got the, did everybody get the handout? Everybody need anybody need the handout? Okay, we got handouts back there. We are in chapter three of uh, faith on trial. Uh, that's from Psalm 73, and uh, we're going to get started there. We have the text there, but I'm going to refer to some other texts in Psalm 20, uh, 73. So you might check it out there. Um, but wh- where we are this morning is uh, the importance and <clears throat> the importance of spiritual thinking. The importance of spiritual thinking. I might put a slash beside spiritual and add biblical. The importance of spiritual biblical thinking. Because he's going to distinguish between rational thinking and spiritual thinking. Well, you can't have spiritual thinking without biblical thinking. So it's spiritual biblical thinking. But getting started, reading Psalm 73 there. If I had said, I will speak thus. And, of course, he's going back. Uh, If you have your Bible, you'll notice uh, from, let's see, that's verse 15. Going back to uh, 13 and 14. Remember, he's feeling sorry for himself. He thinks, man, maybe I've been wasting all my time trying to live for Jesus uh, because I'm sick and I'm miserable and I'm stricken all day long and everything. Uh, uh, Last week, I believe, Bo talked about getting a foothold. He, he, he gets a foothold, but just a little foothold. You know, you're, you're miserable, you're self-centered, you're pitying yourself, you're looking at other people and say, well, man, they're having it great, what about me? I'm, not, I'm, I'm having it terrible. Well, you got to get started, and uh, that was last week's getting a foothold. And here, now in verse 15, um, the psalmist Asaph, if I had said, I will speak thus, Behold, behold, uh, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. 
which is a sermon in itself. Be careful how you handle life because you're not on an island by yourself. What you say has implications to other people. You can build people up or tear people down. And that's what he's talking about here. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, this situation that I'm in, when I pondered to understand it, it was troublesome in my sight. What is going on? Why? I'm tempted to be so selfish, so self-centered, and I can't understand what's happening until, he says, <clears throat> verse 17, and this is the key for this morning, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Then I got understanding when I entered into the sanctuary of God. When things are going hard, you want to get a foothold on God's truth and you want to keep moving forward with that. When your foot is slipping into temptation, even the smallest foothold of truth is better than continuing to slide down. You're tempted. Grab something from God and put your weight on it so that you don't descend into yielding to temptation or yielding to sin or yielding to feeling sorry for yourself. The psalmist is no longer slipping here. He is still perplexed about what God is doing. Some temptation pushes, pulls, attacks. You're standing on even a little bit of solid truth, but you're wobbling. You're like in a canoe, trying to stand up in a canoe. You're, his thoughts are swirling. He's struggling in his soul, but now he goes into the sanctuary of God. The key truth for this morning. That's where God dwells. In the sanctuary of God. Was he talking about the literal sanctuary like the temple? Probably. The temple of God. But for us, we'll just call it the place where God specifically has said, I will be with my people there in a special way. The sanctuary of God. And as he gets there, his thoughts begin to clear up. In God's sanctuary, we begin to look at all of life differently and that is spiritually because we will naturally interpret life naturally humanly without bringing our faith to bear let's see here um, yeah so what do we need to do and this is the point uh, was it was I say yeah, he's still perplexed, uh, but he's gone into God's sanctuary. And so his, so, and here are the lessons of this chapter. The first one is to learn to think spiritually slash biblically. And this is absolutely necessary in the Christian life. What does that mean, spiritually? We're, we're always, Paul Tripp is real good on this. We're, we're all interpreters. We're all interpreters. We interpret all of life. Every day we're interpreting whatever's going on in our lives. If you're looking at life spiritually, you're thinking spiritually, then you are looking at life from a biblical, humble, submissive to God, biblical standpoint, not just naturally like the world thinks. 
And this was this man's problem. He was looking at his life rationally, meaning humanistically, naturally, thinking about life with his own thoughts out of his natural mind, not biblically. He's been thinking about all his own problems, all his trials, all his suffering, and then about how well off other people are, and why isn't God answering me? Why, why am I like this? And, uh, you know, you can, your mind can spin round and round if you, if you go down that road, going in circles, thinking rationally, not spiritually. Ever been there? Self is at the center. Self is at the center when you're thinking rationally, but not biblically. Christianity is rational, but he's using rational in a humanistic sense. sense. And so, uh, wait a minute, let me stay right there. So, um, rational thinking is human viewpoint. Rational thinking, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, it's ground level thinking. It's natural. 1 Corinthians um, to, well, we'll get to that for spiritual thinking, but it's looking at life merely as a human without God in your thinking. Now, you may say, well, I'm a believer in Jesus, but on Thursday afternoons, when this thing happens to you or you're struggling, you forgot about God. You're thinking rationally. You're on ground level, and and you need to get into the sanctuary of God so that your thinking becomes spiritual. Um, rational thinking is merely human viewpoint. It's facts without biblical interpretation. Facts without biblical interpretation. When people talk about all their problems, or when you talk about all your problems... Ask yourself, as you're listening to this person sharing with you all their problems, where is God in this problem? See, that's, where is God in this? That's rational thinking, or that, that's what you're, that'll help you understand, am I thinking just rationally, or am I thinking spiritually? You know, I mean, I think about Joseph down there in the prison in Egypt, you know, and the Lord was with him. He brought his theology with him into prison. He brought his theology with him into Potiphar's house when the woman tried to seduce him. How could I sin against God and do this evil? He was interpreting life spiritually, and that's that second part there. It is rational, but it's taking God's truth into it. Um, where do I have? Okay, that's later. Uh, spiritual thinking. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. So God's sanctuary is where we get God's viewpoint. That's where he got it. And the church, as we're going to see here in a minute, helps us to think spiritually. Now, um, let's see. Does anybody, has anybody gotten this in the mail lately? This came about three weeks ago. It's National Geographic. Yeah, you probably did. I don't know why I got it. You were blessed. I was sort of blessed. 
Now, this is the world, okay, National Geographic, okay? Now, there's a, there's a man, and I don't want to take too, too much time here, but there's a man. They, they cover all the areas of man's wisdom, you know, the great courses of the Western world, uh, not necessarily just of the Western world, but part of that, of course, is religion, okay? And um, if I can find it here, there it is. So... <clears throat> With National Geographic, you can explore the New Testament from the Gospel of Matthew to the Book of Revelation. This did not come from Master's Seminary, okay? And so uh, the go-to man, the go-to scholar, not only for this National Geographic, but basically for the secular world, the go-to scholar of our day is Bart Earhart. Bart Earhart. And he's the go-to guy here. And you can learn all about Airman. Did I say Earhart? Airman. Bart Airman. A-E-H-R-M-A-N. And he has written, so he gives all this information. Now, who is he? Who is Bart Airman? Who is he? Well, he went to Moody Bible Institute. Follow me on this. He went to Moody Bible Institute. And then he went to Wheaton College. Wheaton, went to Wheaton, and then he went to Princeton, that was his mistake, he went to Princeton, okay, this is his story right here, this is a sad story, uh, and it connects with this, because here's a man who started out, he admittedly says, I started out as a fundamental evangelical Bible believing, as a young person, teenager, and as you read through it, he slowly slips to the, to the point now today, and you can Google him and watch his little clips, he is an avowed agnostic atheist. He both doesn't know what's true, and he doesn't believe what he doesn't know is true. He doesn't believe there is a God. He doesn't believe that there is an eternity for souls. He just believes. But how did he get there? Here's how he got there. He got there because he couldn't understand why God would allow the Holocaust. He couldn't understand why God would allow that. Remember back in 2004, the tsunami that came into, was it Malaysia or somewhere? And like 200,000 plus people were swept away. He couldn't understand that. Why, if, if God really is a good God... And he's in control. What kind of God would allow these things? Now, he's thinking spiritually or rationally? He's thinking rationally, right? Yeah, he's thinking rationally. And uh, he says, uh, I came to believe that God himself is deeply concerned about suffering. This is when he still had some notion of God. About 10 years ago, I came to realize that I simply no longer believed the Christian message. A large part of my movement away from the faith was driven by my concern for suffering. I simply no longer could hold to the view, which I took to be the essential to the Christian faith, that God was active in the world, that he answered prayer. He says, we live in a world in which ch a child dies every five seconds of starvation. 
Um, he talks about the Holocaust. He talks about earthquakes in the Himalayas, killing 50,000 people, and so on. He says, my contention is that many authors of the Bible are wrestling with just this question. Why do people, especially the people of God, suffer? And then he says the Bible contradicts itself and so on. And he ends up... Now, how would Jesus answer Bart Ehrman? Get up on that spiritual level because you're on a natural level. God's ways are not your, your ways. Good. There's not just one answer here. I do think about, though, what about those people on the, that the wall fell on, the Galileans that the wall fell on? What about them? Where was God then? Wasn't God good then? Could a good God let them? What did Jesus say about that? You remember what he said about that? Unless you repent, you will also perish. So when we think about all these natural events, we bring our Bible, our spiritual thinking to bear, and we say six million Jews plus Christians plus tsunami victims, earthquake victims, shooting victims concerns you? Jesus would say, Unless you repent, you will also perish. And he also says that we will experience the same, the just and the unjust will experience the same thing. Yeah. But, but he could also question, where was God when Eve ate the apple? That started it all. Really? Why didn't he just say, Eve? <laughs> he could have stopped Eve from eating the apple? Yes, he could have. And that goes back to Kathy's first answer. And that's, I've got that right here in my notes. Isaiah 55, 8. God's ways are not our ways. God has purposes and plans and so on. But one thing about it, no matter how many people are killed on 9-11, no matter how many people are swept away in floods and whatnot, unless you repent, you also perish. That's the bottom line. Bart, you may not understand this, and this may trouble you, as it does all of us, especially if you're directly involved in it, but we, we hold God in highest esteem. He is, he, his ways are not our ways. He has purposes and plans. And you could also go to the cross and say, well, where was God when his own son was, was being butchered there in Pilate's hall and, and so on? And he was right there, yeah. So that's the difference between rational and spiritual thinking, though. Yeah, Dan. In a way, it's man saying, today, my life, this life is more important than eternity. Yeah. That's really what he's saying. R really. Yes. Our life. Yeah. Because we're all... People that were shot yesterday, it was a tragedy, but... Yeah. Eternity is still yeah. important. Yes, and, you know, like it's been said many times by good men, biblical men, um... Hey, we all deserve to die. The very fact that we're still alive is the mercy and grace of God. You know, it sounds a little harsh there. You have to think that through. You have to be able to handle that. We all deserve the judgment of God. And uh, some of them may have been believers. Some of them may not have been believers. It's not an easy thing. 
but it was so strong for Bart Ehrman to cause him to turn away from Christianity. And now he's down, he's a professor, he's a scholar of New Testament studies at the University of North Carolina. So when you go to seminary and you want to go sit under a professor, here's a man that some people will go and sit under, and this is what they will be taught. But he's brilliant. See, that's the problem. It's not brilliance or lack of it. Sad. It's very sad. Okay. Now, um, spiritual thinking. We need spiritual thinking. Oh, by the way, one of his latest books is, I had it jotted down here, is, listen to this. The title of the book is, How Jesus Became God. <laughs> Wait a minute. How Jesus Became God. You can Google, it's on Amazon. I think he just wrote it maybe a year ago. How Jesus Became God. I would rather read a book that said how God became man and then just read the Bible because that's what happened. <laughs> that's really what happened. But you notice that twist? Uh, these, guys are, these guys are slick. They're slick. I, I listened to an interview. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm, but I listened to an interview yesterday and the guy asked me, he said, now, these pastors that go out from these seminaries, do they believe what you believe? Says, For the most part. Well, do the people that they're pastoring know this? That they believe these things? Probably not. Well, why don't they tell them? Well, they don't want to discourage them. Uh, bottom line, they don't want to lose their job. <laughs> yeah, I talked to a Methodist preacher many years ago up in North Vernon who told me he didn't believe in hell. And I said to the people, I knew the church. It was right down there on Route 50 in North Vernon. I said, do, do the people you preach to know that you don't believe in hell? He says, no, I don't tell them that. It's crazy, isn't it? But it just shows you that we're in a spiritual war. But that, um, man, okay, problem. Do I have that up here? The way, uh, learn to think spiritually. Uh, spiritual thinking is rational. Oh, yeah. Yeah, problem. It's easy to slip back. We have to be careful ourselves now. Now we're talking about us Christians, we're talking about handling issues, hard, you know, hard temptations, hard trials. It's easy to slip back into rational thinking. And I like to look at it like this. We, we leave our theology book at home and don't bring, us with, bring it with us as we live life. We know the answers. We know the creation, trinity, deity of Christ. We know all these answers but when it comes to trials and difficulties, and we're really going through the slammer, we tend to slip back and look at life from a rational, human, unbiblical standpoint. And this man was there. He was slipping. He got a foothold. But now he's really going the right direction, and he's gone into God's sanctuary. Rational, humanistic thinking rejects the supernatural. Uh, spiritual thinking accept, accepts the supernatural. It accepts it. And, um, you know, do you believe in the miracles that Jesus did? Yes. Do you believe it? Not everybody does. Do, do you believe in um, that God created the universe? Yes. 
you don't shake your head or otherwise, do you believe that it did, he did it in, in the way Genesis 1 says he did it? You can say yes, six literal days. Do you believe in the virgin conception of Christ? Yes, we do. We do. Will you die for that truth? Is that a hill to die on? It is. You must believe in the virgin conception of Jesus. Uh, do you believe in the ne absolute necessity of being regenerated? Of propitiation? Nicodemus knew what Ezekiel said about the Spirit's work on the heart. He knew the, the, the teaching of Ezekiel as Jesus met with Nicodemus. But Jesus had to say to him, Nicodemus, you're not thinking spiritually here. You need, a, you need to be born again so that you can understand these things. And that's what happens. You know, when you get saved, uh, there's something about the Spirit in our lives that uh, gives us the confidence that the Bible is true. You don't... How many of you have absolutely done all the research from Genesis to Revelation and ended up proving every detail of the Bible as being true? You did it rationally, humanly. You did all the scholarly work and you figured it out. It's all true. Not one of you did. If you raise your hand, you're not hearing my question or you're lying. <laughs> no. When you come to Christ, you're convicted of your sin. You need Jesus. You come to him. You put your trust in him. All of a sudden, you believe everything the Bible says. Now, you may have some questions, and that's okay. No problem with that. But you're not going to go, I don't believe it. You're going to go, boy, I don't understand that. I don't understand it. There's a difference between not believing it and not understanding it. But the Spirit of God, spiritual thinking is you, you believe what the Bible says. My good uh, professor, mentor, uh, Dr. John Whitcomb, when he was at Princeton Seminary, not Princeton Seminary, Princeton University, he got saved over there. And his discipler, uh, I can't think of his name right now, but they'd go out on campus and into the dorms and witness to students. And uh, John Whitcomb was there with him. He's just a young man here. I mean, we were talking about 20 years old or 23. He's with his mentor, his discipler, and they're going in there. And this one guy says, I can't believe that, that Jonah got swallowed by a whale. I just can't believe that. And so Dr. Wickham thought to himself, I'm going to find out if whales can swallow people. And so, you know, he told his, his disciple, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to do the research here and prove to this guy that whales do swallow people. And his disciple said, forget about it. You know what you could do? You could go and do all the research, spend a long time looking up blue whales. Their hearts are as big as Mini Coopers. They can hold a ton of krill. Is that what that stuff is? Krill in their bellies? A ton. How much do you weigh? Not that much. I was not pointing at anybody. Excuse me. That was a... Anyway. Uh, so... And, and I can't think of his name, but he said, you, you, you'll bring all that evidence back to this student, and after you've explained it to him, he'll go, oh, let's go to Big Mac. He doesn't really care. He's just using that as an, as a, as an excuse or as something to, just to debate about. Because when you get saved, you know, things, get, things change. Did you ever notice when you got saved, when God changed your heart and you went out, 
Even colors seem to almost look different. And I, I can still remember seeing a robin on a railroad track. I have no idea where this was, but I'm going over this road and looking at that robin. I've been saved now. Look at that robin. I'm thinking, wow, that's an amazing creature right there. You, know, you just look at everything and God gives you he gives you new vision, new heart. We believe without human evidence. We believe Jesus turned the water to wine. We believe in the resurrection, absolutely. Uh, but we must continue then to think spiritually throughout, throughout our Christian lives as we face difficulties, when life is hard, when we begin to complain and murmur <clears throat> and we feel we're being treated unfairly, we have slipped back. We have reverted back to natural thinking. Uh, there's nothing magical about all this, by the way. It's just that how are you interpreting your situation? How are you, inter are you interpreting just humanly or are you interpreting spiritually, biblically? When we're faced with troubles like this psalmist was, ask yourself, am I thinking spiritually here or am I reverting back? Am I looking at everything? Everything. That's one, of the, that's one of the blessings of being a Christian. You look at every sphere of life differently. Even, for example, this, National Geographic. Man, they got some fantastic photography. And, but you look at that with new lenses. And you don't just accept, you know, you... you, you, you what do you call it, going through the internet? Surfing the internet, and you realize there's a lot of lies out there. Everything, politics. You look at politics. You look at government. You look at the economy. You look at everything is interpreted through the Bible. That doesn't give you easy answers or immediate answers or anything like that, no. But you're looking at it, and you're bringing your knowledge of the Bible into play here, you know, um, and, I, you know, I'll, I'll be the first to say socialism. Socialism is a utopian view that does not take into consideration the depravity of man. And so you cannot give everybody everything. It's going to destroy them and the whole system. There has to be. So you're looking at life biblically. The fall. Accountability. Accountability to God and so on. Now, here's something that um, another friend of mine, a mentor of mine, is Jay Adams. He has this little book, How to Handle Trouble. Nice little book on Philippians 1 uh, about Paul there when his, his, uh, the people turned on him and tried to get him in trouble. And I want, I want you to see these. We need, we need to learn to think spiritually. And here are six points from this book that I have used. What do I have there? When we faced... Faced with troubles, uh, psalmist facing you think, uh, biblically, did you take your theology with you? Ask yourself, am I thinking? Did I hit all the blanks so far? Okay, here we go. Here's Jay's points. You ready? Here we go. You ready? We're going to talk about them real quick. First of all, remember, God is in this trouble. God is in this trouble. I don't care what Christian you are or what your circumstance is. God is in this trouble. He's there. Was God with Joseph in prison? Yes. Was God with Daniel in the lion's den? Yes. Was God with Jesus on the cross? 
Yes. No, no matter who you are or what your circumstances, you got cancer, God is in this trouble. God is there. He is working. He hasn't forgotten you. You know, one of the greatest phrases in the Bible is, I am with you. Lo, I am with you. He is with. Number two, God is up to something. God is up to something. This is thinking biblically here, bibli spiritually. God is up to something here. Um, what's he up to? That's a good question. Number three, God is up to something good. If you're his child, he's up to something good. It may not be good in your interpretation, but it's good from his standpoint. And what verse do we have that proves that? Romans 8, 28. And if you don't have that one memorized, shame on you. Did I just say that? I'm not going to ask for hands, but do memorize that verse. It's not very hard. All things work together for good to those who love God, who are called. All things work together for good. God is up to something good. Number four, discover where and how you believe God is at work through this trouble. And uh, that's nothing mystical here, but what's God doing here? Is he more than likely... This trouble in my life or yours is to help you to trust him more. Yes. All right? It's to help me to change. I've been not living for him as much as I should be. And this he's up to something good. How's he at work? He's changing me. And then number five is get involved in what he is doing. Get involved in what he is doing. Basically, man, get back in that word and start putting it into practice in your life. And then the end of it is, number six, expect good fruit from the trouble. Expect good fruit from the trouble. Um, and you know what? What's, what's the good fruit from the trouble? How about James 1? My brethren, count it all joy when you encounter all kinds of problems. Why? Knowing that the trying of your faith works patience. And let patience have its good effect so that you might be, help me here, that you might be what? Perfect and complete? Perfect. Okay. And complete. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. So, hey, this is the process. This is the process. So those are six Great truths. Um, don't know if you remember, and I don't have a time to develop this very much, but I, I, this book by uh, whatever his name is, Mr. Furman, Kiss the Wave, I think I mentioned this before. This is a great book. He's got some real serious problems, and he gives some amazing stories. But do you remember back in 2006, in 2006, there were Taylor University students, I believe there were nine of them, uh, on I-69, and a truck driver uh, apparently fell asleep and crossed the median and smashed into that van from Taylor University. Do you all remember that? Wow. Man, I didn't. I do not have a very good memory. I have to read these things. I have to work for what I get. You guys just keep it. But anyway, um, so uh, long story short, what happened was... Um, the one girl and her name, uh, two passengers were Whitney Sirac and Laura Van Ryan, or Rin. And yes, hang on. Don't, don't blow my thunder here. Okay. 
It's not really funny, but it kind of is. Um, so, so the one that survived was in the hospital, and, and uh, Laura Van Ryn. And there she was, and her parents were there with her. She was in a coma for five weeks with the parents by her side. And uh, after five, she regained some strength, and a therapist put a pen in her hand and asked her to write her name. Now, Laura's parents are standing there by the bedside. The Serex, their daughter, Whitney, she was destroyed so much they didn't have an open casket. They had a funeral for her without a... Anyway, so when she wrote her name, she, she wrote W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, Whitney. And the whole time, in other words, it was mistaken identity. Here the parents were looking, thinking it was their daughter, when really this was the daughter of the Serax. And so here's the question. Your daughter, you thought she was recovering here somewhat. We're get, we find out that she's their parents' daughter. Our daughter, who we thought was here recovering, is the daughter that was in the funeral and had been killed in the car wreck. My question here is, how do you process that biblically? How do you handle that? How do you think, whether you're the, the, the parents of the daughter who, oh my goodness, she's alive, or the parents of the daughter who suddenly finds out, oh my goodness, this isn't our daughter, our daughter's the one who died. Man, how do you handle that? How do you think about that? And uh, it turns out that the, both parents handled it well. They were encouraged about lawsuits and all this kind of stuff. Be careful about being quick to call the lawyer. Lawsuits, and they did not do that. And um, there, there's still friendships today. Whitney, the girl who recovered, I think she had some brain damage, but she, she got married. She finished school, I believe, at Taylor, and she went mission trips and so on. But uh, talk about handling things spiritually. Now, real quick, we got to move. Hey, wait a minute. 951? That can't be right. That can't be right. Okay. Um, hang on to that paper, because I want to make sure we get to lesson two and three. Uh, or, no, there's only two. Lesson two with the first, second, and third there. Because here's the thing. Let's wrap it up here. He was confused. He was perplexed. He was not thinking biblically until he went into the sanctuary of God. And as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, and I will t quote this, it is a very foolish Christian who does not attend the sanctuary of God as often as he possibly can. I know that this is just a building, but we are a church. We're the people of God. We meet, and churches around the world meet you leave your home, you drive through the streets, and you go into that place where you meet. You are in the sanctuary of God, as it were. And there you are hearing about God. You are seeing others in there that they're going through issues, too. They're going through struggles, too. And so uh, go into the sanctuary of God. It's just a great truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. Thank you for how you help us through hard times 
to come to you into the sanctuary so that we begin to interpret whatever happens to us, we begin to interpret it and help us to continue to interpret it spiritually, biblically, applying our understanding that we've gotten from you, applying it into our lives, Lord, so that we can actually, as James says, rejoice even in the hardest time. And Father, we, we're not going to walk away like Mr. Ehrman has and accuse you of not even existing because you didn't stop all these problems. Lord, we know that you're in control and your ways are not our ways. And you have greater reasons than we for what you do what we understand. In your name I pray, amen. Amen.